following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last week, we uh, started into our series, which is going to carry us through most of this year on this life of David. And so what we want to do is continue in that into uh, the second messages of I, which I've entitled The Unexpected King. We're going to look at the anointing of King David. And so let's begin with a word of prayer as we uh, gather around uh, to the hearing of his word. Father, we ask you that your living word um, would come alive in our hearts. Um, words that were written so long ago in a totally different culture than our own, and yet um, have such relevance for us. Uh, open our hearts that we might understand what your heart is toward us uh, by what happened thousands of years ago on that day um, when you took that little shepherd boy and anointed him to be your king. And so open up our heart, we ask of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, as we started into this Life of David series that we're calling After God's Heart, uh, we kind of explored what that means to even call David this man after God's own heart. And one of the things that I established last week was to say that what it does not represent is that somehow that David was morally superior to us, that he somehow lived a better life than us, that he somehow sinned less than us. There was an obedience that David displayed throughout his life. I, I won't rob him of that. Um, but boy, what an imperfect obedience, to say the least, that that was. Uh, this was a quote that we looked at last week from Eugene Peterson describing David. David has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. That's why David is so important to us. His life represents a soul in search of God. At its core, the story of David is the story of a person growing more and more alive to God. This is why the David story is so important. Um, it's, it's a testimony of a man who, whether it's in his darkest moment of failure or his greatest victory, constantly is looking back to God as the source of it all, as the source of his strength, the source of his power, the source of his comfort. And so last week I started not with David but with Saul the first king of Israel. And what's really kind of jarring is that if you put the life of Saul and the life of David side by side, and you kind of list all of the things that they accomplished and all of the bad stuff that they did, I don't know. You're, you're kind of left to struggle a bit to say, who's the better man, really? 
I mean, who lived the cleaner life? Who sinned less? And yet, why is it that with these two men, Saul and David, they have such radically different judgments made on their life by God? And I I think as we're going to see as we keep going on in the story, if David represents a person who saw God as the most important reality in his life, Saul represents the exact polar opposite of a person who treated God as an ever-fading afterthought in his life. In other words, what David longed for more than anything else in his life was the presence of God. And he sought that presence. But with Saul, God became a more and more increasingly irrelevant footnote in his life. And so we saw that last week. Even when Samuel would confront Saul with his sin, it looked like repentance outwardly. But the truth was that Saul really didn't seem to care much about what God thought of him. And so in 1 Samuel 15.30, sort of the crux of that whole chapter, it says, Then he said, I have sinned, speaking of Saul, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Here Saul plays his hand. Okay, whatever God thinks of me, that's fine. Just come back with me so that we can make a good public show of it. And honor me before my people, which is what I really care about. It's interesting that he no longer refers at this point in his life to my God. But he says, your God. I will go and worship your God in front of my people so that everything will be okay. You know, it's interesting. Some have wondered, why didn't God just start with David, you know? Why this whole Saul narrative? Why wasn't David the first king of Israel? After all, God is God, isn't he? What was the point of Saul? Was Saul just an object lesson to illustrate a life gone bad, to contrast it with David's good life? 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 11, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and it says this, I regret that I have made Saul king. I regret. What does this mean that God regretted his choice of anointing Saul king? Well, at the end of the story, we find these words in 1 Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Sounds like a contradiction here, doesn't it? I think what the Bible is saying to us is this, is when we regret something, what it usually means is we feel bad about a choice we made because we feel we've made a mistake. And God is perfect. He cannot make a mistake. And so his regret is is not the same as our regret when it says that God regretted that he made Saul king. There are mysteries found throughout the Bible here between God's control of all things 
and our freedom that we have as human beings and the responsibility we bear to use that freedom wisely that we cannot fully resolve with our limited knowledge. Meaning, who takes the blame for Saul? Whose fault is it? It's interesting that on the one hand, it looks like God chose Saul as king. But if you look at 1 Samuel 12, verse 13, we're given kind of a different perspective as well. Because it says in that verse, And now behold the king whom you have chosen, speaking to the Israelites, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Here we're given the perspective, maybe it's the people that sought after a king like Saul. What we know is this. In the end, Saul is ultimately held responsible for turning his back on God and rejecting him. He is not simply a helpless pawn in God's chess game. But what we see here is that he is held morally responsible for the choice of rejecting God. It's interesting, years later, when Saul and his son Jonathan die, and David hears the news of their death, David, despite the fact that Saul has caused so much pain in his life, doesn't celebrate the death of Saul. He actually grieves it and mourns it and writes a lament in honor of Saul. And in that lament in 2 Samuel verse 1, verse 19 to 24, this is what David would say about Saul. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan Turn not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. David, who I believe mirrored the heart of God, mourned for the tragedy that was Saul's life. It wasn't this attitude of good riddance, get off the stage. But there was this sense of the potential of a life that could have been if only Saul had obeyed, if only he had the faith to keep his eyes on God, who anointed him king. David grieved Saul at his death. But many years before Saul would even die, the prophet Samuel began his mourning for the tragedy of the life of Saul. Chapter 15, verse 35 of 1 Samuel, it says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. I believe that God, too, grieved 
the life of Saul. But what I also see in what happens next is that God's ultimate purposes cannot be thwarted even by our disobedience. His plan keeps moving forward. And so God commands Saul at the beginning of the next chapter, 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, the ESV says, I have provided for myself, but the actual Hebrew word there is, I have seen for myself a king. This word see is going to occur seven times in these 13 verses. And it's going to develop a theme that is absolutely critical to understanding the message of David's anointing. 1 Samuel 16, 2-3, the story goes on. And it says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Samuel's concern is understandable. God commands him to anoint a new king while the current king is still reigning on the throne. And so Samuel basically complains to God and says, you're sending me on a suicide mission. This is craziness. It's also worth mentioning that Samuel lived in Ramah and David was in Bethlehem. And in order to get from Ramah to Bethlehem, you have to go through a town called Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown. (laughs) You have to go right through it. And so Samuel probably was thinking, What if I'm spotted (laughs) by someone in Saul's clan? Frankly, there wasn't a capital of the nation yet. So what if Saul (laughs) sees me walking by on my way to Bethlehem? What's going to happen to me? As we're going to see the story going further on, uh, Saul, as he rejects God, starts spiraling down in this horrible way. And he begins this dark path into paranoia. And he is consumed with jealousy and fear of anyone who might try to threaten his throne. And so Samuel has good reason to be afraid of Saul. But it goes on and it says, And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? It's not clear why the people are so terrified of Samuel. Whether it's just frankly because all the prophets in those days were terrifying people or whether it's because the Bethlehemites know the fallout, the falling apart of the relationship between Samuel and Saul. And so they're like, we're not sure we want you here in our town causing trouble. Regardless of what the reason is, it's not a welcome presence at first. They're afraid. But in verse 5 it says, And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And then the story goes on in verse 6. 
Then they came, when they came, he looked, there's the verb again, he looked and Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So now that the sacrifice has been altered, uh, offered, Samuel gets to the true purpose of his mission there in Bethlehem to anoint this next king of Israel. And he starts with the firstborn, Eliab, who must have looked pretty impressive because his immediate gut reaction is, this has to be the one. He's got to be it. Remember, just a few verses earlier, we saw God say to Samuel, I have seen for myself a king. And now the prophet himself, we're told, sees Eliab, and he says, I have seen for myself a king. Because this guy looks like kingly material. It's interesting that Samuel had the exact same reaction when he first saw Saul. Remember that? For Samuel chapter 10, verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. What I find so interesting is this guy is a prophet. And, and sort of in my own head, I imagine prophets know everything, right? They, they almost share the heart of God. They must know everything that God feels, everything God knows. But when you look at the Bible, you realize they were human beings like us. And they get it wrong sometimes, like us. They're not perfect in their knowledge of God. And so even though he was a prophet, he is fooled by outer appearances. And he looks at Eliab and he says, this has to be the one. He even watched Saul crash and burn. And seeing this guy that looks so stately, so kingly, and yet totally turn his back on God, And yet through the witnessing of Saul's life, Samuel still hadn't learned his lesson. And so he looks and says, this has to be the one. I'm going to anoint this guy. He's got to be the one. I don't know how we can really fault Samuel because the truth is, this is the air that all of us breathe, isn't it? Truthfully, our natural reaction is to see people like Saul and Eliab as the kind of people that ought to be leaders in our life. We look at beauty. We look at the impressiveness of physical appearance. We look at charisma and a winning personality and maybe even intelligence as the kind of things that we want in a leader. And you just have to look at the history of the human race to see the devastating results of that. And how many people seem to have all of the appearances of what ought to make a good leader and yet would do horrible things through their leadership and cause so much pain in people's lives. And so God redirects the eyes of his prophet in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look. There's the verb again. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Listen. 
it's not that there is something inherently evil about beauty or a charming personality. It's not as if God hates those things. Just as there is not an inherent virtue in short people or ugly people with no personalities. In fact, David himself will be described as handsome. He's a ladies' man. Later on, we'll see that. The women all swoon when David enters the room, okay? It's just that beauty or height or charisma cannot be what we use to judge the ultimate value of a human being. What God is saying is when I look at a person, my focus is on something completely different. It is on their hearts. In verse 8, the story continues. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So like an assembly line, one by one, these seven sons stand before the prophet. And one by one, God tells Samuel, not him, not him. Reject, reject, not him. And after evaluating the last of these seven sons, there is total confusion in the camp. The seven sons must have been confused because they were told one of them was going to be picked to be king. Jesse, the father, must have been confused. But most of all, I think Samuel must have been confused because he's the prophet who was there to anoint the king. And Samuel must have been thinking, where did I go wrong? How did I mishear God's voice? And so he doesn't know what to do. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? So, you know, Samuel's basically backtracking. He's trying to troubleshoot this. And he's going back to all of his presumptions that he's made. And so he just says, is this really all your sons? You know what's interesting is Samuel's question to Jesse implies that there must have been a prior conversation in which Samuel commanded Jesse, make sure all of your sons are here at this event. But then Jesse says, oh yeah, uh, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And I picture Samuel giving one of those looks to Jesse like, <laughs> you know, just like that, you know, like, just like that in that picture, right? And, and he says, uh, and Samuel says to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Now, I lived in Africa for five years, and I know what happens when you send your youngest to go take the sheep out. This is not a five-minute wait. You, in fact, have maybe waiting there for an hour because you have no idea what pasture area the kid has gone to. You've got to hunt him down. That has to have been one of the most awkward waits ever, right? As they're all just kind of sitting around waiting for the runt of the litter to come back. So we find in verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy, which is an interesting way to describe him. Because that actual literal word means he was red. <laughs> he was the color red. Some people think he might have had reddish hair. 
We don't know exactly why David. Maybe his face, cheeks were very flushed with red. We don't know. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. What a dramatic scene that must have been that day. Seeing this little kid, this runt, in Korean we call this the mangne, you know? The, 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 the youngest, the least in the family. Running in from the field, having no clue what's going on, and just looking at everyone, staring at him. And then suddenly this prophet of God anoints that same kid, the next king of Israel, while all of his older brothers who just got rejected are standing there watching what's happening and trying to figure out what God is doing. That's the story of the anointing of David in a nutshell. Let me just see if I can point to a couple lessons here that I think God is trying to teach us through the story. And at the heart of it is simply this message. Our worth comes not from our attractiveness or accomplishments, but from God's grace. It's interesting that Jesse is instructed by Samuel to gather all of his sons for the sacrifice. You can advance the slide. But his own father doesn't even think to include David in the list. In his own father's eyes, David isn't even important enough to count. He doesn't matter. And so he's not even invited to the party. The seven older sons are who matters. You know, it's interesting. In the Bible, seven is a very important number. It occurs over and over again. The number seven represents completeness, perfection. Seven is a good number. Eight is too many. Eight, the eighth is an afterthought. And David is the eighth son. Samuel must have assumed that Eliab was the future king, not only because of his height or his attractiveness, but also because he was the firstborn. In Jewish culture, that's the way it worked. The firstborn, the eldest son, was the favored child. All the other kids were a distant second. The firstborn is the one who will carry the father's legacy. He is the one that will get the best portion of the father's inheritance. He is the one who has superior rights to all of his siblings. And yet, what is so fascinating is this. Throughout the Bible, God violates this principle over and over again. And God ends up choosing the one that is not favored, the one who no one expects. And so Isaac is chosen 
over his half-brother Esau. Jacob, uh, uh, Ishmael, Jacob is chosen over Esau. Joseph is chosen over all of his other older brothers. And now David is chosen over the seven older brothers that he has. The name David actually means beloved, beloved. And that's what David was, the one forgotten by everyone else, beloved by God. I think God is sending a message to us here. And it is this, that God has a special place in his heart for the forgotten ones, for the unimpressive ones, the unimportant ones that everyone else considers worthless, not worth even considering. It's interesting, Leah was the uglier, (laughs) the less attractive of the two sisters. She was the unwanted throw-in in the marriage. But God would choose Leah, not the pretty Rachel, to be the mother of Judah through whom the line of the Messiah would come. Moses, the stutterer, is chosen to be God's mouthpiece. This is the heart of God, demonstrated over and over again in the Bible. And the truth is this. This is not how we are naturally wired. And that's a problem. All of us are naturally attracted to beauty and strength and power and charm. I'm not going to name names here, but someone in our church uh, brought one day uh, to church uh, this Segway Mini Pro, okay? <laughs> and uh, I had a chance to kind of zip around on it. It was actually, I've never ridden anything like a Segway before. And it was so much fun. <laughs> we actually set up like an obstacle course in the fellowship hall. <laughs> and I was, you know, this is what your pastor was doing during office hours. I was kind of maneuvering between the tables and chairs and weaving in and out. So we had good fun for about, you know, 15 minutes riding around the Segway. And then we stopped. But this was the real revelation of standing on a Segway. Was uh, I, I, you know, kind of pulled up next to a couple of the guys, but Pastor Peter was one of them. And uh, I was just, we're talking, and I was like six inches taller than I normally am. And it felt so good. You know, I don't know how to describe it. But I thought like, this is what it feels like to be six feet tall, you know, is you're looking down on people. I don't know. It was such a bizarre moment for me. But I thought, what a leader I would have been if I was six feet tall because I felt like I could crush people at this height, you know, because most of my life I'm looking this way at people. And it's hard to be a leader when you're always looking this way at everyone. But on that segue, I was looking down on everyone. Women, do you know that feeling when a really beautiful woman walks into the room and all the guys start acting differently? <laughs> you, you've experienced that, right? And you realize they didn't act that way when you entered the room, right? But suddenly all the guys are just kind of weird because a beautiful woman has entered the room and it's not you, <laughs> It's, that's how I feel when I compare myself with my brother. 
I've shared this in different moments, but I've always had a complex because of this because, you know, I, I come into a gathering, a family gathering, a church event, and everyone's like, oh, Steve's here. You know, that's about it, right? And then my brother walks into the room and everyone lights up. Hey, Dave is here. Now the party can get started. <coughs> and now I'm like, hey, what about me? You know? There's something so crushing and brutal about all of this, isn't that? Because truthfully, the problem is this. How many of us get to be that person who's the most beautiful, the most accomplished, the most charming in a room? And what I want to say is this, is as long as these are the measurements by which we judge the worth of ourselves and other people, we will be totally derailed from the life that God wants for us. Love could be right there at your doorstep and you don't even know how to recognize it because beauty and strength and charm are the things that you are attracted to. And what God is saying here is this. This is not how I value human beings when I see them. This is not what draws me to people. As God told Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, we got to answer a question here. What exactly does that mean that God looks at the heart? It seems like what God is saying is that in choosing David, I have chosen one who has a more noble character than anybody else. But if that were the case, if that's what it means that God looks at the heart, then character just becomes the new measuring stick by which we judge someone's worthiness. And as I've already established in the first message last week, and as we're going to establish through the entire David story is this. David's character is going to be really lousy at a lot of points here. David is going to make a lot of mistakes and fail in many ways. So what is it that God saw in the heart of this kid that says he's the one, not the other seven? I believe that what God in, saw in David was the heart of a boy who longed after him. as he is there tending the sheep all by himself, somewhere in that incubator was growing a heart of a man that was growing to love God more and more. The heart of David, as we kind of saw last week, and I, I want to illustrate a little more right now, was seen throughout the Psalms. Psalm 23, 1 through 3, spoken by a shepherd himself. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 
Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is what God saw in this little boy. Is the heart of a person that longed for God. To make God so real in his life and worship him and him alone. Listen, all of us struggle. All of us will get knocked down and fall. None of us are all that impressive. But when God says, I am looking at the heart of a person, what he's looking for is the person that will return to him again and again in faith and trust. Uh, There's something I don't share very often in public settings. Uh, It's it's sort of the darker shadow of my own journey. And I, I have alluded to it here and there. That has to do a lot with the fact that I think starting since high school, I began to read a lot of books on philosophy, you know. And somehow from that young, impressionable age, my head got really scrambled up <laughs> with a lot of different ideas. And speaking to you very frankly, Um, sometimes my faith struggles get really dark sometimes when I try to understand this world and why things are the way they are and try to reconcile all the things that I see wrong with this world with a God who is supposedly in control and in charge. Sometimes that battle in my heart is so real, so dark, so raw. But this is what I can say. Even in those doubts, even in those questions that just plague my soul, what I can honestly say before you is this. It brings me back to God again and again and again. So that even in that struggle, my heart is still saying, but where else can I turn? Who can I go to in the struggle? Who holds the only hope of a real answer? for me than you, God. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. This is what God is after when he says, A man after my own heart. Not the most morally upstanding role model that we can find in society. Of course God loves righteousness. Of course God longs for our obedience. But when he looks at the heart of a person, it is the one that says, you are my king. The reason why this is so important to the David narrative is because we have to understand the context of why all of this is happening. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we saw the Israelites reject God and want an earthly king. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's what God said about his people. When they wanted an earthly king, they were basically rejecting me as their king. And so now that God gave them their wish for an earthly king, 
what God is looking for in that earthly king is a king who would reconnect him with his people who have turned their back on him. And I think that's where David stands out more than any of the other kings in the Old Testament, is that more than any other king, David longed for God to rule his people. That was the heart of David. David longed for the presence of God among his people. That's what God was looking for in a king. And that's what God is looking for in our hearts. You know, years later, another king would be born in Bethlehem. And his name was Jesus. That was God's only son. I love this painting of Jesus because it's so brutal (laughs) in the way he's depicted. Because Isaiah, in his servant songs, says, when this son of God would come, there would be nothing about his physical appearance that's going to attract any of us to him. When you look at him, you're going to say, son of God, no way. (laughs) If God became man, he would not look like this. Jesus, the son of God, had all of the beauty in the world. Was the most beautiful being ever. Was the most powerful being ever. And yet in the most personal and touching way imaginable, he gave up that beauty. And he gave up that power to show us the heart of God, his Father, and what God truly values in us. Philip Yancey, this quote that you've heard me read before, but I just love it, and that's why I use it so often. It talks about how we understand our identity, says this. Sociologists have a theory of the looking glass self. You become what the most important person in your life, wife, father, boss, etc., thinks you are. How would my life change if I truly believed the Bible's astounding words about God's love for me? If I looked in the mirror and saw what God sees? By instinct, I feel I must do something in order to be accepted. Grace sounds a startling note of contradiction, of liberation, and every day, I must pray on you for the ability to hear its message. Let's pray. (coughs) Um, Listen, there's so much here in this anointing of David that it's sort of being left unsaid. And uh, as we continue on in the story of David, we're going to unpack more and more of the implications of what all of this is about. But for today, for this service today, uh, I'm just going to invite our focus to be a little bit more simple and streamlined in just thinking about what this represents in the heart of God when he sent his prophet Samuel to go to this insignificant town of Bethlehem and to anoint for himself a king. And it's interesting that even his own prophet is just fooled by the values of the world. So he sees the firstborn son, Eliab, and he says, this has to be the one. 
And God says, you know, I agree. In the eyes of the world, he would be the one that's chosen. But that's not my heart. And so just like he chose Jacob, just like he chose Isaac, just like he chose Moses and Leah and Joseph, God chooses David. He says, when I look at a person, I don't see what you see. The things that so impress everyone else doesn't really impress me. But what impresses me is the heart of a person, flaws and all, weaknesses and failures and all, insecurities and all, longs for my presence in their life. And you know what? You may not win a beauty contest. You may not be the most charming person to win a room. I don't know. That definitely is not me. But this is something that we have all access to because of what Christ has done, is to live a life that pleases God because Christ has made a way for us. What David did imperfectly to connect the people to God, Christ would do perfectly on the cross.